Good morning. You may be seated. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab them. Uh, We'll be in Luke chapter 4 this morning, so feel free to start turning there. I need to do the same, matter of fact. For any of you that may be new here, if I haven't had the chance to meet you, my name is David Neuenschwander. Uh, My wife Jennifer and I are three kids. Uh, We've had the joy of being members here at Risen North since week one uh, in Scott and Melissa's living room. So as a matter of fact, Reese, she's right there, our oldest, um, she was born about two or three weeks before the church started. So I have memories of many a Sunday morning in the car carrier rocking her on Scott and Melissa's kitchen island. So it's it's a joy to be with you this morning, and it's a joy to get to do life with you over so many years. Well, we find ourselves in an interesting passage this morning, coming off the heels of a tremendous moment in Jesus's life, like Sean talked about last week. As an act of obedience, Jesus is baptized by John the Baptist. He comes out of the water, spirit descends like a dove. The father says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. It's this incredible moment, right? This incredible identity affirming moment in the life of Jesus. But then we take a surprising turn. Now that the Father has affirmed his identity, does Jesus immediately go out and start his earthly ministry? Does he start healing the sick, opening the eyes of the blind, raising the dead? No, he doesn't. He goes into the desert alone. Well, briefly alone, as we'll see in a few minutes. There's one other interesting thing as well following Jesus' baptism. And Sean talked about this last week. Given the weekly built-in breaks between sermons, it may not be immediately obvious, but if we were simply reading through the book of Luke together, it would be really interesting what we'd find. So right here after Jesus' baptism, the Holy Spirit through Luke takes an aside and runs through Jesus' genealogy. Sean taught about the importance of this genealogy last week. But what about its placement? Why is it stuck right here? We'll talk about that a bit this morning. Again, if you have your Bibles, Luke chapter 4, starting in verse 1. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returning from the Jordan, and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. Again, Jesus comes out of the water, his baptism. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And then Jesus heads to the desert, into the wilderness. And while he's there, who should show up but the tempter himself, the father of lies. But remember what we just read in verse 1. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, led by the Spirit to the wilderness for this purpose. This is no ambush, right? Jesus didn't take a wrong turn down a dark alley in the wilderness, This is a divine appointment. He's there on purpose for a purpose, by the will of God for this divine appointment. And now I know when we use that phrase, right, we're typically talking about I ran into someone, they could encourage me, I could encourage them, ran into someone I needed to pray for. But this is a divine appointment that I don't think any of us want. So, and through this exchange between Jesus and Satan himself, we're going to learn some interesting things 
about the nature of the enemy, the nature of temptation, but most importantly, we're going to see the nature of Jesus in his response to temptation. It would be a mistake if the primary thing that we take away from our time together from this passage is how we can fight temptation. Sure, there's some application there. We'll talk about it at the end. But the most important thing for us to take away from this passage and our time together is who Jesus is and who he reveals himself to be through this passage. So here's an example. I'm a biography guy. I love reading about the lives of heroes of the faith or great leaders throughout history. I just enjoy that. I love seeing how God takes broken men and women, full of their own flaws, full of their own self-doubts, and seeing how God uses them mightily in all of these different ways. For instance, somebody like John Newton, slave ship captain, saved by grace, turns from that deplorable life, becomes a pastor and a preacher, and ultimately writes the most well-known hymn in history, Amazing Grace. Or the great Puritan pastor, Jonathan Edwards, who God used to fan the flames of the Great Awakening all throughout the colonies. And this may go without saying, but these biographies, these men's life stories, they're not about me, right? Their life story is not about me. But that doesn't mean I can't learn anything from them. I also find World War II era history super fascinating. And even though those life stories aren't about me, I can still learn a lot. Right? I can learn a lot from the, the powerful diplomacy of a Dwight Eisenhower or the sheer grit of Winston Churchill. Right? Unfortunately, as you're going to find out, Churchillian masterful oratory can't be picked up through reading, just so you know. You're about to find out. So, so again, while we can learn some things about how to respond to temptation from the passage today, the most important thing for us to take away is who Jesus is and who he reveals himself to be in this passage. In arguably his greatest trial, his greatest moment of need outside of the garden. This story is about him. It's not about us. So let's jump into it. Picking up at the end of verse 1. Jesus was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. And the devil said to him, If you're the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. Now I know all the keto, low-carb people in the room said, I knew it. Bread's the problem. Bread is of the devil. But I don't think that's the message we're supposed to take from this. So, so this temptation is to be independent. Right? So the devil walks up. And just as a quick aside, it's important for us to really put ourselves in this moment. Jesus has been without food for 40 days and 40 nights. Right? He's hungry. Not this sermon's running a little long hungry, like real hungry. Right? Like nearly bordering on starvation and death hungry. Right? And it's in this moment the devil walks up and says, well, you're the son of God. Aren't you? Surely God doesn't want you to be hungry. See, that if you are the son of God at the beginning of this, that's not questioning Jesus' identity. It's rather questioning God's care and provision. 
So in this, we see uh, Satan coming up to Jesus and say, God's going to let you die out here? Wandering around in the desert? Some father he is. Look, there's some stones. Just make those into bread. This temptation is to be independent, to act in his own power, to help God out in caring for him, and thereby showing that he doesn't trust God to do it. And Jesus' response shows us that he knows exactly what the devil is up to. And Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. The passage Jesus quotes is from Deuteronomy chapter 8. We're going to read verses 2 through 4 for some context. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone. But man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Your clothing did not wear out on you, and your foot did not swell these 40 years. So while Satan is tempting Jesus to meet his own needs, to question whether God cares, or if God will meet his needs, Jesus quotes the exact passage where God is supernaturally meeting Israel's needs over and over and over again. God gave the Israelites water from a rock. I don't know if you've tried that in your backyard. It doesn't work. So they're, they're without food. So Jesus is providing manna. So in the morning, there's dew on the ground. When the dew is gone, there's this like wafer-like bread everywhere covering the ground. At one point, birds are literally falling out of the air so that Israel can eat them. Satan tempts Jesus to meet his own needs and questions the care and provision of the Father. But Jesus responds, no. The Father can and will meet my needs. He's done it before, just like he did with Israel. God will provide, but it's in his timing, it's for his purpose, and it's for his glory. I trust him. I don't need to take care of myself. I don't need to look out for number one. God will meet my needs if, when, and how he determines it's best. And as an aside, we see in the Matthew account of this passage uh, that God did exactly that. Jesus' hope in the Father is not disappointed. At the end of this exchange, after Satan departs, Father sends angels to minister to Jesus. So, continuing on. So, Jesus responds to the first temptation, affirming his trust in the Father, but Satan is unfazed. Let's pick it up at the end of verse 5, or excuse me, beginning of verse 5. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time, and said to him, to you I will give this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. Wow. That escalated quickly, didn't it? You want some bread? No? Okay, how about you worship me? 
So the devil is no longer messing around with carbohydrates. Now he's going right to the heart of Jesus' mission. His promise is to give Jesus all the authority and all the glory that earth have to offer, that earth has to offer. And all he has to do is fall down before Satan. Now, this temptation is particularly devious because the glory and the authority that he's offering rightly belongs to Jesus. And Jesus gets it in the end. But one way to get there requires pain and suffering and agony and death. And the other way, just a quick bow down. But if it had happened, it would have been a bow with catastrophic consequences. Satan's offer here is a shortcut to glory. Skip the three years of ministry. Skip the rejection. Skip the agony of the garden, praying and sweating blood. Skip the cross. You can get the gain without the pain. And it's important that we don't subtly believe that these temptations weren't really hard or weren't really temptations because it's Jesus. Think about how targeted this is. Jesus is fully God and fully man. And the tendency towards self-preservation, that runs pretty deep in man. You don't really want to suffer and die, do you? There's another way. You don't have to do that at all. That's brutal. And it specifically targets who Jesus is, his relationship with the Father, and the whole reason he came. But praise God, Jesus doesn't shrink back from this challenge when confronted with the long, hard road to Calvary. Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Jesus responds again from the book of Deuteronomy, hearkening back to Israel in the wilderness. This is how it reads in Deuteronomy 6, 13, and 14. It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the people who are around you. Did you catch the beginning of that passage? It is the Lord your God you shall fear. In effect, Jesus is saying, I don't fear pain. I don't fear suffering. I don't fear death. I do fear the Lord. I will not take the cheap and easy route because that's not what the Father has for me. I choose pain. I choose suffering. I choose death because that's what the Father has appointed to me. And that's the road to redemption for the people that God has called to himself. Jesus chose the long, hard, costly road for you and for me. Picking up in the third temptation. Satan now running out of options, trying everything he can think of. Jesus keeps passing these tests. But he notices that Jesus keeps responding with Scripture. So he decides to get creative and quote a little bit himself. Verse 9. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you 
And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Now, scholars believe that this was the corner of the temple called the Royal Portico. And this corner of the temple, it was built right on a cliff that overlooked a ravine. It was 450 feet straight down. In fact, the historian Josephus tells us it was so high that people would get dizzy just looking over the edge. And it's here that Satan makes his final attempt. He quotes Psalm 91, which is a messianic psalm. And he also pulls out that same phrase from the first, the first temptation, if you are the son of God. Again, meaning because you are the son of God. Here Satan affirms Jesus' identity and acknowledges his trust and dependence on the word of God and on the Father, which is why he tries to exploit both of those. In effect, he says, since you are the Son of God, since you do trust the Father, and since you believe Scripture, why don't you go ahead and obey this verse? But Jesus sees through Satan's ploy. And Jesus answered him, It is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Jesus knew that this was not something that the Father had asked him to do. It was not up to him to come up with tests to see if God passes them. He references that same Deuteronomy passage in which Israel tested God in the wilderness. Jesus knew it wasn't the son's job to try to force the Father to act in a certain way. Attempting to twist the arm of God to do something, that's not evidence of faith. It displays a lack of faith. It's an effort to make God do something on our terms and our timeline rather than trusting him to do what he chooses in his own timing. And Jesus says, I want no part of that. The Father will do what he says he will do, and he will do it when he chooses to. And then Satan departs. So what have we learned about Jesus this morning? If you remember from the beginning of our time together, we referenced Jesus' genealogy being placed as an aside right between the baptism and this passage. Here's an interesting fact about that. In the Bible, we see Jesus' genealogy recorded in two different places. In the book of Matthew, it recounts Jesus' ancestors, and the genealogy stops at Abraham. Matthew was recorded for a primarily Jewish audience, and it was important for them to know that Jesus was a child of Abraham, because they knew that the Messiah would be. In this genealogy, though, it continues on past Abraham and goes all the way back to Adam. Now, why is that? Well, throughout the passage today, we see Jesus being confronted face-to-face with temptation by Satan. Who else in the Bible experienced that? Adam and Eve in the garden. And during that, we also see this tremendous contrast. Adam and Eve in a lush garden surrounded by beauty. Jesus in a desolate wilderness. Adam and Eve with full bellies surrounded by abundance. Jesus fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. Then, of course, we see Adam fall to temptation to not trust the Father, to eat the forbidden fruit. And today we've seen Jesus hold fast through temptation with unshakable trust in the Father. We've seen Jesus not turn stones into bread. 
We've seen Jesus not meet his own needs, even though he could. Jesus succeeded where Adam failed. In addition, we've seen glimpses of Israel throughout Jesus' temptations. That's why every passage that Jesus quotes only comes from two chapters in Deuteronomy, where Israel's wandering in the desert. Israel grumbled and complained about food. Jesus did not knowing that the Father would provide it in his own time. Israel built idols and worshipped them. Jesus would worship only the Father, even at the cost of his own life. Israel constantly tested the Father in the wilderness, but Jesus would not. Jesus succeeded where Israel failed. Jesus is the true and greater Adam. Jesus is the true and greater Israel. Finally, in the book of Hebrews, we learn a bit more as well. This is picking up in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. And continuing in 4.14, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect is tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Jesus suffered in his temptation, just as we do. Jesus has been tempted in every way we are, yet without sin. Jesus succeeded where we have failed. Now, I've never been tempted by Satan himself, but I've succumbed to temptation more times than I can count. It didn't take the father of lies my own deceitful heart, my own thoughts, maybe a whisper from a JV demon or something. But Jesus succeeded where I failed. And here's the truly amazing thing. Because Jesus walked through temptation, in our moments of temptation, he's sympathetic. He wants to help us. His posture towards us is merciful and gentle. I don't know about you, I get so frustrated in my own frailty and failings. Come on, David, again, get it together. But Hebrews says, his heart toward you and I, in the middle of our struggle, is merciful and gentle. He's not standing far off, sick of our constant battling, but he's near, and he's offering to help. He isn't saying, come on, what's your deal? He's going, come on, I've got you. But I failed back there. Yeah, I know, I paid the bill already. We can, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace to receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That is incredible. 
So in the passage today, we've seen Jesus walk through temptation perfectly. We've seen Jesus succeed where Adam failed, succeed where Israel failed, succeed where you and I have failed. Praise God. Now, in our last few minutes together, like we talked about before, this passage isn't about us. It's about Jesus, who he is, and what he's done. But what can we learn about the nature of temptation from this passage? Well, let's look briefly back at those temptations. The first one, turning the stones to bread. Where are you tempted to help God out in blessing you? Right, we get entitled pretty quickly, don't we? God wants me to be happy and healthy and wealthy and comfortable. Really? Or about the second one, the shortcut to glory. At the risk of making this trite, where are you tempted to do the easy wrong thing rather than the difficult right thing? Well, God wants me to provide for my family, so I'll just fudge this timesheet or this reimbursement request. I'll just change a few things and cheat on my taxes. Or my marriage has gotten into a really bad spot. It'll take a lot of work, a lot of counseling, a lot of repentance to reconcile. Or I can just flirt with this other guy or girl. Or I can just start this new relationship with someone who doesn't yet know me at my worst. Or the final temptation, testing God. Satan tries to trip Jesus up by quoting verses that were in Jesus' self-interest. Now, in our case, I think this plays out a bit more by us justifying sin with Scripture. I think this plays out that way. No, I'm not given to drunkenness. I'm just enjoying my freedom in Christ. This is my Christian liberty. No, it's not gossip. It's a prayer request. Come on. Finally, what can we learn about fighting temptation from this passage? First, you must be filled with Christ. If you're in this room and you don't consider yourself a Christian, you cannot and will not overcome temptation. You cannot do it on your own. Just like Adam could not, just like Israel could not, just like I could not. Do not put your hope in yourself or your own strength or your own ability to be good. Put your hope in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. None of us have walked through temptation perfectly. Put your hope in the one who has. We must look to Jesus and receive his righteousness as a gift. When the reformer Martin Luther was asked how he overcame the devil, he replied, well, when he comes knocking on the door of my heart and asks who live here, who lives here, the dear Lord Jesus answers and says, Martin Luther used to live here, but I live here now. You must know him. Second, be filled with the Spirit. Jesus was full of the Holy Spirit and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness. 
And after this passage, in the verses we'll see next week, Jesus returns in Galilee in the power of the Spirit. He was full of the Spirit before temptation, led by the Spirit through temptation, and living in the power of the Spirit after temptation. In Galatians 5, it says, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. We must yield to and be led by the Spirit of God. Finally, be filled with Scripture. Excuse me. Be filled with Scripture. Jesus responded to every temptation with Scripture that was hidden in his heart. It almost seemed like a natural reaction, right? Like if you prick Jesus, he just bleeds Scripture. We must fill our minds and our hearts with the Word of God. I'm sure someone right now is thinking, oh, great, here comes the read your Bible part of church. Yes, it does. Read your Bible. (laughs) Know and love the Word of God. Not because you should. Not because that's what church people do. But because it was given to us by God to know Him rightly, to see Him clearly, and to become more like Him in so doing. Look, I know some parts of Scripture can be confusing. I know some of us are probably just intimidated by it. The Holy Spirit will give you understanding. In 2 Timothy, it says, Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. The key is thinking about it, filling your mind with it, working to understand it, and trusting the Lord through the Holy Spirit to give you understanding. So to help you think about it, to help fill your mind with Scripture, that's why we're starting Risen Institute in just a couple of weeks. First class is September 17th. It's going to be Sunday afternoons. The topic of this class is Christian literacy. It's how to rightly study and understand Scripture. Be there. Being intimidated by the Bible, not understanding it, that's not going to magically go away on its own. You must think about it. You must fix your mind on it and let the Holy Spirit work. Press in. Register for the class. Be there. Look, as elders, for years we have prayed and thought and dreamed about how we can help our body treasure Scripture to know and love right doctrine, right theology. This is the answer to that. Don't miss it. In the scriptures, we see God as he has revealed himself. Not a version of God that we made up in our own minds. We must fill our minds and our hearts with the word of God. Today, we've seen Jesus walk perfectly through temptation. We've seen Jesus succeed where Adam, where Israel, and where we have failed. And because Jesus was tempted in every way we are, yet without sin, We see Jesus as our gentle, merciful, and faithful high priest, offering righteousness, offering salvation, and offering to help in our time of need. Let's praise him for that. Let's pray. Jesus, you are good. You're so much better than we think most of the time, Lord. We're 
Like the song said this morning, we're prone to wander, we easily forget. Jesus, thank you for the reminder this morning that you have succeeded where we have failed. Where Adam failed, where Israel failed, you have done it. You offer your righteousness to us. God, you're so good. Remind our hearts and minds of that. Help us, lead us, Spirit, fill us. God, use us to make much of you for your glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.